This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book. The present series is Christian Fundamentals, and this is number three of the series. It is our custom of this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, so those of you who are listening, if you care to switch off for a while, and turn to Isaiah chapter 61 and 62, that will constitute our reading for this evening. This present study was commenced last Thursday evening, and we ascended rather breathlessly these ten steps, which are before you on the chart, and then went back again and reached the examination of the prophet Isaiah. I can't say we've done much other than give a little idea of the contents of these three books. I would like to remind you of their teaching because of the link with Matthew. Because when we come to our next study, we are out of the Old Testament and into the New. We leave behind prophecy and we now face fulfilment. Although, of course, there will be some prophecies still in the New Testament, the main bulk of the prophecy is now about to be fulfilled. So first of all, we notice the book of Genesis brings before us Adam as the father of the human race. And alas, he involved that human race in sin and death. Abraham comes before us as the father of the chosen nation, through whom, by the grace of God, salvation to that fallen race will be channeled. The next book, Exodus, gives you a picture of this race and their redemption in the experiences of that one people. For they go down to Egypt and they are involved in bitterness, burdens and bondage and they are redeemed out of it by the Passover lamb and come back to where Abraham started. A picture of the redemption in its fullest and most wonderful sense which is yet to be applied and accomplished. Well then we made a terrific leap to the prophet Isaiah. And there we get in some measure the Old Testament answer. Who is sufficient for these things? And I read one verse that says the government shall be upon his shoulder. And you know the shoulder is the symbol of supporting strength. Even the ancient Greeks have got the same figure of Atlas bearing up the burden of the world. The government should be upon his shoulder. But who is he? Oh, Isaiah, who says that tells us more. He says, he's a child that is to be born. He's a son who is to be given. And his first name is Wonderful. When I meet with people who can explain all about the question of the person of Christ, I wonder at them. This is not merely a matter of scholarship or ability to reason or be an expert in metaphysics. It's to sit in wonder at the condescension of the living God to ever come down in the likeness of me. His name should be wonderful. And then it goes on counselor. The mighty God. Don't forget Isaiah was a Hebrew. And he had no hesitation in saying, a child that was born 
was El Gibor, the mighty God, the father of the ages and the prince of peace. This same prophet Isaiah tells you that his name shall be Emmanuel. And now we're coming to the Gospel according to Matthew, which tells you what it means in case you don't know. So shall we now turn to the next book in this series, the Gospel according to Matthew, and we shall discover that the first prophecy which is to be fulfilled is that very one. We'll just uh, focus our attention upon that for a moment and then we'll have to stand back a little bit and see the relationship of Matthew with the other Gospels. <coughs> it says in verse 21 of the first chapter, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. And you know that the name Jesus involves the word salvation. It's the word Joshua in the Old Testament. And twice in the New Testament, the word Jesus doesn't refer to our Saviour, but it refers to Joshua. You'll find that in the speech of Stephen in Acts and in the fourth chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews. So if I were reading the Greek version of the Old Testament and said, now we'll turn to the book of Jesus, I should have to say that if I was referring to the book of Joshua. Joshua is the Hebrew, Jesus is the Greek name, and it means a saviour. There are a good many mystics in this world, and most of us know somebody whose name is smart, and he isn't, but here's one whose name means all these gracious works. His name is, now Joshua, first of all, was called Joshua, and then the J was added. The J that's added is the word Lord, Jehovah. This is the salvation of the Lord. So when old Simeon took that little child up in his arms and said, Now, Lord, let us thou thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. He did. That was his name. That was his word. So that's his name, but we haven't done yet. Now all this was that all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And that will stop there. Which being interpreted is God with us. So here we have Jesus, the virgin's child, the son of God, God manifest in the flesh. All these types crowded. Well now before we look further in the Gospel according to Matthew, let's remember that there were four different accounts which are called Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. You can go back to early Christian times and discover that there were four Gospels, no less and no more. You may know there is one book which is called the Diatessalon and if you don't know what the word Diatessalon is, you can soon guess it means the four. The four. It speaks of them as the four. Well, now there are three of them that are called synoptics. S-Y-N meaning together with, and optic most obviously to do with eyesight. It's a similar viewpoint. The three have a similar viewpoint. And then John writes about the same life, and the same death, and the same resurrection, 
from another point of view. And he tells you, now don't think that that's exhausted it, but he said if all the things which Jesus said and did should be written, he said, behold, I don't think the world would contain the books that would be necessary. That may be a figure of speech which you can quite see that there, are, that there were as many facets to that earthly life as, well, I'm stumped for a simile. A good thing too, perhaps. But when you come to the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark and Luke, they're not identical. They have their differences on purpose. Matthew sets before us the king. All the way through, we have the presentation of the king. He was born in Bethlehem because he was king. Herod asked the question. Not that he wanted to worship him. He was afraid when he heard about it. And he said to the scribes, Where should he be born that he's called king of the Jews? They should all in Bethlehem for it is written. And so he was. And he announced the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He gave presently the parables of the secrets or mysteries of the kingdom. It's the gospel of the kingdom. And so it's genealogy with which we are starting this first chapter. <coughs> it's content to go back to Abraham. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Which David first, Abraham second. So that's the order in which the fulfillment takes place. He's king first. And then Abraham, with blessing to the nations and the inheritance of the land, follows. You notice this is called the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. There's no other reference, no other use of that expression, except in Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 5 we have the book of the generation of Adam. And you never get the expression again till you open here, this page, and it says, now forget the book of the generation of Adam and contemplate the book of the generation of Jesus, the Saviour, the Anointed One that God has sent. So the prophet Isaiah leads us on to that passage we read this evening. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. You see? Oh yes, here it is. We are now at the beginning of fulfillment. Because God deals with accountable people and not with automata, there may be some hindrances. You've only got to know the Old Testament before you come to the New to know that there were many things that the non-repentance and the failure of Israel, as it were, stopped temporarily, but I only temporarily. It will, uh, ultimately, every part of God's will and word will be fulfilled, but the human element is there. So, as you go through this Gospel of Matthew, you discover that that blessed Saviour, with all the credentials he had from his birth, from his introductory miracles, and the wonder of his teaching, he nevertheless was despised and rejected. And yet, how wonderful. They fulfilled the very prophecy by denying them. For the very prophet says he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We did as it were our faces from him. But the gospel according to Mark has no genealogy. 
it starts straight off with service. And the very last words in the Gospel according to Mark tells us that the ascended Christ was working with them. It's the servant, the worker, from one end to the other. One of the characteristic words of the Gospel according to Mark is the word straightway. You know, no sooner gives you one miracle than he says, straightway. A very willing servant. That's the failure. And of course, a servant needs no genealogy. I haven't had much to do with engaging servants, but if I did, it wouldn't be much good to bring a pedigree. You want to know what their capabilities were and whether they could be trusted. Well, there's Christ the servant. No genealogy. But when I come to Luke's gospel, there is a genealogy again. But this time, he doesn't stop at Abraham. Of course, Matthew knew that Abraham wasn't the first, but it was good enough for his purpose. But Luke had another purpose. He takes you right back to Adam, the only man that died, Luke. And he was the one who stood together with Paul, the only man who introduces Adam into his epistles. So now we've got a gospel that looks at the Gentile as well as the Jew. So when old Simeon took up that infant Christ, he said a strange thing for one who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He said, a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of my people Israel. He put the Gentile first. I think he must have surprised himself. But he said it by inspiration. So when I read in Matthew that he was born at Bethlehem, king of the Jews, I find that when I look to Luke's gospel, he says he's born in the city of David, a saviour, not a king. Oh, he was a king, but a saviour. And then you'll discover right through you, wherever he gets a chance to say salvation or forgiveness, he slips it in where Matthew puts in king and kingdom. No discrepancy. Another aspect of the same one. Even the parables of Luke's gospel differ from Matthew. Matthew didn't put the prodigal son. Matthew never said a good Samaritan. I don't suppose he could, he could screw himself up to have said a good Samaritan. But, well, not that he did for that. That's all we say about it. But he was a good Samaritan. Don't you see? Each one of these so-called synoptics have got their own point of view. Well, we can't put them all into our study at the moment. But you see, the more you know the others, the more the one will have its message clearly seen. So this Gospel according to Matthew, now, with that little uh, introduction, let's come back to it. I draw a line through the middle of the Gospel, divide it into two parts. And you may say to me, well, you do, but what you want for it? Oh, that's right, we want to know why. So I turn you to two verses. The first one is in Matthew chapter 4, 17. Just recently I've been in correspondence with a friend who is about 87, I think, and he remembered me in the year 1902 at a Bible class in Fulton Street, and I think I impressed myself upon his mind for I was everlastingly badgering him with questions. I'd only been a Christian about two years, and some of the words that he used, I didn't know their meaning, but I was after them. And all these years have gone by, and he still remembers me. So, badger your teachers with questions. And if they get, if they get stumped, that would be good for the whole of us. But sometimes we have to admit, we can always answer them. But it's good to ask. 
Matthew 4.17. From that time, notice the time element. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From that time, he began. And I don't suppose it needs a long argument to prove that if he began to do it, then he hadn't said it before. So now with that in mind, we turn to chapter 16. This is where I draw the line across the middle of the Gospels. Verse 21. Now this says, from that time forth, the translators have slipped the word forth in there, well they could have put it in chapter 4. For the language is identical. Just exactly the same. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Now, he began to tell them that. But he'd never told them that before. And yet, in chapter 10, they were commissioned to go out and preach the kingdom with signs following, and it's evident from what follows that they did not know at that time that the king they preached must first of all die and be raised again. You say, how do you know that? Oh, I've got a special revelation for you. Oh, but you happen to have it in front of you as well. Here it is. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from me, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. How could Peter have ever said that if he'd have known that the death and the resurrection of Christ was the absolute keystone of the salvation that we preach today. So do be careful not to mix the good news of the kingdom with the good news of the grace of God. Well now let's divide Matthew into two parts. The first part is the son of David, the king. The second part is the son of Abraham. What do we say? Well Isaac was the son of Abraham. Solomon was the son of David. Solomon foreshadowed the king with universal peace. Abraham's son was Isaac. And he was the offering. For he had told in Hebrews 11, he offered up his son. Of course, some of us say, oh no, he didn't. Well, I, I, I disagree with you. God says he did. But you say, I don't think he did. Well, you see, it was the intention of a man that's recognized. He went right to the limit and then God stopped him. But so far as Abraham was concerned, his heart had been torn to shreds and he was treading a dreadful path but willingly. And so we have the offering of Christ in the second half, introduced by those words. Well now on the first part of Matthew, we have the Sermon on the Mount. And we have the rejection of Christ anticipated, for it says, because these cities repented not when they saw his mighty works, he pronounced a woe upon them. And in chapter 12, he said, a greater that the temple is here, a greater than Jonah is here, a greater than Solomon is here. Well, that's prophet, priest, and king. If you have the temple to represent the priestly office, Jonah the prophet, Solomon the king. They rejected him in his three offices. And that's immediately followed by the parables, not of the kingdom. Parables of the mysteries of the kingdom. And if you know that a mystery comes in when there's been some defection or failure, then you would never take one of those parables 
and build a doctrine upon it that that's what the kingdom is going to be like. You say that's what it's become like because of the detection of the people and their failure. When we cross over this line, there are another series of parables that are entirely different. The first one and the last one has the word sunario in it, which means to take a reckoning of a servant and consider his service, whether it's faithful or no. And the parables of the vineyard and all those are workers in the absence of their Lord. That's the character in the second part, you see. So that there's quite a consistent testimony right through the gospel according to Matthew. Well, what am I to do? If I'm not careful, we shall be on Matthew for the rest of the evening. And that means standing on these stairs a long time. And I have other things to deal with. So these are only hints. Hints to the reader and hints to the teacher how to approach the book and look at it in the large before you get down to the maze of detail. So we'll turn the page and we'll consider the other gospel. The gospel according to John. Now according to ancient tradition, uh, backed by names of men who gave their lives for the truth, it's quite a one thing to sneer at tradition. It's another thing to remember that these people that we quote were living in days that to be confessors of Christ meant to be mostly a martyr's death. And right from the earliest days, these men have maintained that John, when all the others had died, when Paul's ministry was over and finished, at the very last, he wrote his gospel. Largely because there was creeping in doctrines that were subverting the truth. And he was then free to write concerning Christ uh, from an angle that was not quite reasonable and possible when Matthew, Mark and Luke took up the pen. He is distinct from all the rest. Don't notice this. I said that Matthew and Luke have a genealogy. One to Abraham, one to Adam. I said that Mark has no genealogy, well neither is John. A servant needs no genealogy, and this one can have none. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him not one thing was made that was made. Oh my, you can't have a genealogy there, can you? One writer said, drawing on his imagination, he said, however enthusiastic you may be about writing the life history of one of the presidents of the United States, you'd hardly start it with the geological history of the Niagara Falls, would you? You wouldn't want to go back all those millions of ages. But look at this, where do you go here? In the beginning. Now this gospel does not so much enlarge upon the king and the kingdom. And it doesn't give you the parables and the miracles so much that are found in the other Gospels. It's got its own selection. It doesn't express very much that you can lay hold of as to what their peculiar calling is in this Gospel. You don't know whether they're members of a body, you don't know whether they're members of a bride, you don't know whether they're subject of a kingdom. Nothing is said. But one thing is stressed. And that one thing all of us need. 
whether we are going to inherit a kingdom, or whether we're going to be the bride of the Lamb, or whether we're going to be members of the body of Christ, you'll have to be quickened from the dead, you'll have to have life. And that's the very first essential in every case. Now I turn immediately to that passage, but we must quote it however much we know it. Those who know it best will only be too glad to have it once more repeated. Chapter 20 of John's Gospel, he doesn't leave us in doubt as to why he wrote it, he tells us. Sometimes we are obliged to search and search again to discover perhaps the motive or the reason for some book in the Bible. That's a good exercise of mind and heart. But this man, he puts it down in black and white. In fact, I rather think that was his character, because if you read his epistles, especially the second and the third, he speaks about writing with pen and ink in one epistle, and writing with pen and paper, or ink and paper in another. As though that was the man, uh, if there was going to be one who put it down with pen, ink and paper, here he is. Well, this is what he says. Uh, chapter 20, verse 30. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Well, that's a negative. He's telling us what he hasn't done first, not written. Only to tell you that there's been a divine selection. But these are written. Now, you're supposed to have read right through John's Gospel. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. That's all. It doesn't even say you must have some conception of the meaning of redemption and atonement. doesn't say that. And not once throughout the whole of John's Gospel does he use the key word of Matthew, repent. Neither repent or repentance finds a place in the Gospel according to John. It's simply believe. And believe this person. Now, of course, you couldn't believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and know the rest of Scripture to know uh, and deny or have no knowledge of the fact that he came to offer himself a sacrifice for sin. But it's not specified. And where God hasn't specified, you and I better hold back a bit. You see, I've sometimes stood and listened to somebody speaking to an inquirer seeking the way of salvation. And this Inquirer, standing there with eyes open, listening for perhaps the first time to the presentation of the way of salvation. And he said, oh, yes, I believe it. And they said, oh, 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 don't be so quick as that. Instead of saying, well, you've done what Scripture says, oh, we must now pray. So they start praying. The poor person gets bewildered. He doesn't know where he is. And then he's told now, don't make up your mind too quickly. Uh, you, you may not have grasped it all yet. Go back and... Oh dear, oh dear. The scripture doesn't say that at all. It says, these have been written that if you only believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you'll have life through his day when you've got all the rest of this life and the life to come to discover all that he did for you. That's the simple issue. He that has the Son has life. Of course, we do get suggestions in this gospel that he came to give his life a ransom for many. I'm quoting Matthew. He gave his life for the life of the world. I'm quoting John. Or when you read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But the one thing is, it's his son. And you believe him. 
As you pass from death unto life. He says so in John 5. He is, here is my word, and believe it on him that take me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but he's passed from death unto life. You see, all the time, it's the one issue. You believe his son. And there may be many of good Christians who could be completely baffled by, you believe in the vicarious sacrifice of the Son of God? What's the word vicarious? Makes you think of the old times on the wireless, didn't it? Do you believe in the triangular element of the atonement of Christ? Never heard of it. You know, it makes me think of the, of the student who was coming home from his first term at college to a little country village. And he had to go across in a ferry. I told you this before, I'm almost certain. That's the worst of getting old, isn't it? And when he got on board the ferry, he said to the old man who knew him as a boy, he says, you know anything about etymology? No, never heard of it. We said, there's about a third of your life gone, he said, I should think. So they went a little bit further across on the ferry. And he said, do you know anything about philosophy? No, never heard of it. Oh, he said, there's about a third of your life gone, I think. Then they bumped into a floating log. The ferry tipped over, he says, oh, do you know how to swim? No. Well, he says, all your life's gone. You see, you can put these things in their wrong place. God doesn't say, whosoever can define the atonement. You know, I don't believe it's ever yet been defined. I've spent hours and days at the British Museum. And every book on the atonement I, I got out, this is years ago, presented an aspect which you couldn't help but believe to be true. And then you've got another and another and another and there's so many aspects of the atonement that you begin to realise that God himself alone knows its full meaning and we only know in part and see through a glass darkly and it's best to accept the fact without trying to limit it by our human definitions just now. This unspeakable gift. What's an unspeakable gift? Well, it baffles words. We ought to be like the Queen of Sheba a bit more. His name is wonderful, and so is his work. And behold, the half has not been told me. Wouldn't do us any harm sometimes. <clears throat> so here we have John saying that these signs, now what signs? Oh, when we go through John's Gospel, we discover after the introduction, which is a very extraordinary one, occupying the first 18 verses, when it starts the Gospel proper, he threads it with a string that you can say was the word faith or believe, and then the jewels on the string are the eight signs. Every time a sign has been given, you get something to do with faith. A sign, something to do with faith. All the way through. Now these signs were selected under the divine guidance. And I've honestly looked at them and I thought to myself, well I wouldn't have selected that one. Well, of course, that's no credit to me, and it's no criticism of John. It only means that sometimes we approach scriptures from a, a wrong angle. This gospel stresses the glory of the person of Christ. He said, whatsoever the Father does, that likewise the Son also. The Father judges no man, he gives all judgment into the hands of the Son. 
As the Father raises the dead and quickens them, so the Son of Man. Oh, look at the glory of this person. And if the work had been entrusted to me to select out of all the things that Christ had done, I should have been looking down the list of the miracles to have discovered some outstanding, overwhelming, all-powerful marvels that he wrought. But what's the truth of the matter? What did John do? Well, he picked out his first miracle to manifest his glory, and that was at Cana of Galilee. A little village. I do remember when I was in Italy seeing a picture by, uh, well his name's gone from me for the moment, but a huge, oh, Tintoretto, Tintoretto, huge canvas, huge columns, marble steps. Oh, a magnificent affair. The wedding at Cana. Well, that was a lovely picture, but it was altogether wrong. It was a little village, just a little village, our Saviour was only invited as a guest because his mother was a friend of the family and because the wine had run out a little before the time and to save the faith of the bride and bridegroom and not send them away with a feeling that the cup of blessing at the finish was not possible, he just provided enough for the occasion. Just a simple miracle like that. Don't think he turned the six water pots into wine. That's an absolutely impossible interpretation. If you knew the word draw out now, you never make such a faux pas. Well, that's beside the point for the moment. When I come to the other end, the risen Saviour is now, not the humble Jesus who was invited to a wedding. It's the risen Saviour looking out to his disciples who had gone fishing. And he said, have you, putting it into modern terms, have you had your breakfast yet? I said, no, Lord. He said, come and dine. I've got it ready for you. That's another miracle. Well, I wouldn't have thought of giving a miracle to set forth the glory of his person and show him just cooking fish on a cold fire and invited the disciples. And then when I look right in the middle of this gospel, what do I find? He arose from supper and taking the towel, he girded himself and a basin of water and he began to wash his disciples' feet. Oh, friends, we make such a tremendous mistake when we everlastingly play on one chord of the magnificence and the all-bustiness of the living God. There's another passage we want to remember. It's in one of the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 18, when it says, Thy gentleness hath made me great. And that word gentleness is the word that is translated elsewhere and especially in the New Testament, thy humility, the stooping down of the Son of God is his greatness. And don't forget he was crucified in weakness. And then the scripture says, but don't forget again, the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so we've had this series of signs threading their way through. The second sign is a nobleman's son who is at the point of death. And the balancing on the other end is a beloved brother who's been dead four days. All perfect. And you get the blind, you get the man who's been there waiting at the pool, and you get the blind man sent to the same pool and wash. And so you bring all these signs together. 
And each one is a stress upon believing, 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 and the consequence having life through his name. <coughs> Just by, by way of concluding our survey, we'll go back to the first chapter and observe the way in which this gospel is introduced. The first 18 verses are extraordinary, both by the wording and their place in New Testament writing. Notice this. It begins and ends on this note. Verse 1 and verse 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now look at the last of the verses, verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Take the last statement. He hath declared. That's the office of a word. If I'm speaking intelligently, and if I'm speaking truthfully, I'm declaring what's in my mind. And Christ is the visible representative of the invisible God. For it says, no man hath seen God at any time. And yet I can turn to the passages in the Old Testament scriptures where he definitely says they saw God. Well, you've got to resolve that. But it doesn't need any if you know it's referring to this one. Then it says, he's in the bosom of the Father. Well, isn't that the equivalent to he was with God? So he's fulfilled his office. He's made God visible and audible. In John's Gospel, audible, the word. In the epistles of the Colossians, the image of the invisible God is made invisible. That's the purpose of this coming into our life and coming down to our level. But we could never have heard and never have seen the living God apart from that stooping down, that humility which has made us indeed great. Well, then we come back to the... Uh, to the opening of the uh, the one that one that take every verse, but you notice in verse fourteen the stoop is now realised and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And this word dwelt is the word to tabernacle, to live in a tent. A tent is a temporary structure, however good it may be, and that's where he came. Just in a temporary structure soon to be laid aside and to ascend to the glory that was his before the world was. And we and it says, and we beheld his glory. And the words which follow in verse 14 are a little difficult to put exactly into an English translation, but it's something like this. And the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. That kind of glory that you would associate with an and only begotten of such a father. Right then it's put it. So they didn't see the glory that belonged to his heavenly uh, aside. They saw the glory as of the one who was made flesh. They saw the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. But what a glory that was. What will it be when John 17 is answered? Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son. Glorify thou me with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. 
Father, I will that they also who thou hast given me be with me where I am, where I am, where they may behold my glory. Mm-hmm. A glory that goes back before time, veiled temporary. But some eyes down here looked at him and said, they saw no beauty in him that they should desire him. And others had their eyes touched and they saw a glory, a glory that belongs to an only begotten of such a father full of grace and truth. We have a blind man in the ninth chapter, blind from birth. And the first face the man ever looked upon was the face of the Son of God. And the Savior said to him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And I'm so glad the blind man didn't say yes. He said, Who is he, Lord? And he said, It is he that you're looking at. And he worshipped him. Lord. So here we have these two Gospels, so different in their point of view, but revolving round the person and work of the same glorious person. Whether he's king of Israel, whether he's the bride, uh, the bridegroom, the, of the, uh, in the book of the Revelation, whether he's the head of the church, which is the body, and whether he's any other wonderful title, it's always that one person that fills the whole story with his grace and his glory. Well, now I think it would be vain to say, well, now we go on and consider the Acts of the Apostles, Galatians, Hebrews, Ephesians, and Revelation. Well, we will. Uh, but it would do harm and not good to try to cram into these evenings uh, such a survey. Let us be thankful that we have an opened Bible. Let us be thankful that the more we look at these books, the more we begin to realize that they're all of a piece. They have their own peculiar character, they have their own message, and yet they fit. As we observed, I think, when we looked at Exodus, the first word in the book of Exodus is the word now, which doesn't mean a note of time, but means just a connection. We often use the word now with no reference to the present time. Now, these are the names, a link. And you'll find other books follow now, a link. So each one has its own separate message. Yet each one is a link in a chain. And we find wonderful echoes in the book of the Revelation that take you right back to Genesis, the curse, the paradise, the death, coming in and being removed. Or take you right back to the Gospel according to Matthew for another start. Nowhere to lay his head on his head, many crowns. A crown of thorns, diadems. He speaks from the cross, it is done. He speaks from the throne, it is done. On the cross it says, it is finished. He comes riding on an ass, he comes riding on a white horse. And they cry, Hosanna, save now. And they cry, Hallelujah, it's all over. Oh, there's a wonderful link between all these books. So if this series can only quicken the interest of teachers of Bible crafting and seeking students, I think it will be well worth the time spent both in this chapel and recording it 
and we now commend a second attempt to climb this stairs to the Lord and to the interests and prayers of his people.